0: get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way.
1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace and today I want to talk about how, why is it that some teams seem to do so much with so little and yet others that have enormous amounts of resources seem to accomplish very little. Well it turns out, as you're going to hear today, that people perform better with constraints. Now may come as a shock to you but there's good news in that so as a leader the questions we want to ask is what's the best way to get your team to stretch to do more but without having them feel stressed out and overwhelmed and how can you do more with what you have and how can you inspire other people to stretch so that's our focus for today my guest is scott sunenshine scott is the henry gardner simons professor of management at rice university His research is award-winning. He teaches and consults with Fortune 500 executives, entrepreneurs, professionals, and in a host of industries, technology, industry, healthcare, retail, education, manufacturing, banking, nonprofits. I don't think there's one left out of that. He has a PhD from the University of Michigan, a Master of Philosophy from the University of Cambridge, and a BA from the University of Virginia. He's worked as a strategy consultant for companies like AT&T and Microsoft, and he lived through the rise and fall of the dot-com boom in Silicon Valley startup. So Scott's been widely represented in a variety of media outlets like the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Time Magazine, Fast Company, and Harvard Business Review, and obviously he's now living in Houston, Texas with his family. So Scott, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, now, and I should add that there was a lovely book to accompany this, and the book is titled Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less and Achieve More Than You Ever Imagined. Okay, Scott, so you, this book is about stretching, and you contrast stretching with chasing. What do you mean by those two?
2: There's two very different ways to think about how we work and lead. When we're chasing, what we're doing is we believe that we need more resources to be more effective, bigger budgets, larger teams, more time. And what happens is we orient our leadership to trying to acquire these resources. Now with stretching, we have a very different philosophy. What happens is we take stock of what's already around and we free ourselves to be more creative and more engaged with what we already have. And what this allows us to do is to not only work quicker, but often more effectively. We're not distracted by the resources we don't have, but we're rather empowered by those that we already do have. So you can think of this as like a a simple example. Imagine you're at home and you want to get a nail into the wall to hang up a picture. Well, the first instinct is, Well, do you have a hammer? Well, I don't have a hammer. So if you're chasing, you're going to go do whatever it takes to acquire that resource. You might go look in the garage, and maybe you have a hard time finding it because it's all dusty and all cluttered. Then you might knock on a neighbor's door, and it turns out they're not home. Finally, maybe you'll drive to the hardware store, and hopefully they'll be open, and you'll spend your $12, and you'll buy a hammer. With stretching, you simply take the shoe off the bottom of your foot and you get the nail into the wall. You do it just as competently, but you do it much quicker. You recognize that you already have a lot of things that you need to succeed. It's about thinking about them differently, not waiting for tomorrow until you get everything you need, but starting to act with what you do have.
1: So this is about not wasting time looking for other resources, so not a distraction. It's about a bit of creativity, and it sounds like it's also a bit about getting started with what you have available.
2: All right. I mean, how many times do we think to ourselves, if I only had more time or more money or more information or more connections, I could do X and fill in the blank with whatever you want to do. This is a book to teach us that you're often already have everything you need to succeed it's just about using those things more creatively and more effectively as opposed to waiting for tomorrow that quite frankly often doesn't come anyway Uh
1: or something else comes up in the meantime that you need to either stretch or chase now you've done a lot of research on this about the power of stretching versus chasing so i know we could spend two hours summarizing that research give us the five minute summary of the key highlights
2: Sure. Well, there's, there's a number of uh, principles that are important to keep in mind. I think the most counterintuitive one is how constraints enable us to actually work better. Because when we're chasing, which I think is a, a dominant style for a lot of people at work, we think constraints are really bad. It's a signal that we don't have everything that we need to get our work done. For some people, it might also be a signal that maybe they're not doing so well at work. The boss didn't give them one extra person or some more money or some more time to get something done. So we see this as, as a stigma. But what the research actually shows is not only can we work through constraints, but we can often work better because of constraints. And that's because of the way that the brain thinks differently when it's under constraints. So in research, what we find is When we have an abundance of resources, or we even think about having an abundance of resources, we default to the traditional way of doing things, the way that other people use resources. Other people use hammers to get nails into the wall. That's what we think of a hammer. But when we put ourselves under the condition of either real or simply imagined constraints, we free the brain to think much more flexibly and creatively about resources. That's why our shoe can be transformed into something that can get the nail into the wall. So it's that openness, that constraints actually liberate us to use things in different and more creative ways. So I think that's, that's one big part of the research. Another big part of the research is why chasing often doesn't work very well. Because we think that, well, just logically makes sense. If you have more resources, you can get more done. But I should tell you the the origins of this book happened when I was in the uh, the dot com boom and bust, and I um, went out there at a time where everyone's business model was oriented around doing two things basically one acquiring as many resources as quickly as possible, whether that be capital, employees and talent and customer, and two kind of going through those resources as as quickly as possible because then they would simply get more. And that works really well as long as the resources keep flowing in. But as we know from from history, that rarely rarely happens. And these companies had a very hard time adapting because their entire models were based off of acquiring and using resources, not being able to adapt and be flexible. So when we're stretching, what the research shows is we're able to be much more nimble in good times and in bad times because we develop a competency to be able to adjust our resources to meet whatever circumstances that we are facing.
1: So I do remember that dot-com era and the, the whole, anybody who didn't live through that one, it was how fast can you burn through money? I mean, it was craziness and it obviously wasn't going to be sustainable because money is not that free for all that long. But you're right, it led to a lot of companies that had no clue how to adapt when we just couldn't throw lots of resources in any given thing. Now, you said something along the way here that if, that the brain works better when it's under constraints, whether they're real or imagined. So can I get the same effect by just imagining that we have constraints?
2: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, look, we find ourselves in different types of situations all the time. Some of us are more fortunate than others, and we work in more resource-rich organizations, at least today. But the reality is is most most things are cyclical, and what seems good today might not be good tomorrow, and that's why it's important to learn how to stretch regardless of the times. So imagining constraints is one way that we can produce better work, even if we're one of those few lucky people who are finding themselves in resource-rich environments. So in one study, simply reflecting and writing about a time when you were a child, so you're looking, you know, decades before before the present and thinking about a time when you didn't have everything you wanted helped get people into this mindset and made them much more creative and innovative. So it's not just about the real constraints that people face. Simply thinking about them unlocks that brain to be flexible, too.
1: Okay, so this is really truly about, I think you said the word several times, freeing my brain to think in a different way, to imagine possibilities in a different way, and to not go down the traditional route. And you said already that um, when we have an abundance, we tend to default to the traditional ways. We want to do the tried and tested, what everybody is doing, what we know already works. Interesting. So... Help me out here as manager. How do I go about as an individual thinking about leading my group through a stretch process versus a chase process? Because I can imagine, I say to people, okay, we're going to have this new exercise. I want you to imagine a time in your childhood when you didn't have everything you want, and we're going to free our brains to think creatively and my team is going to turn around to me and say, yeah, that's just because you're cheap, boss, or you're not fighting for us, or I'm not important enough or something. So what does this really look like from a manager? Can you give me an example?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, I, th- I think it's a great question because that is that is one of the uh, reactions that employees have when their, their boss, uh, you know, might try and use this. Approach, And the reason for that is because these are cultures that over time have embraced chasing where employees begin to judge the value of their careers and their projects based off the amount of resources that are handed to them. And leaders enable this type of behavior all the time and you know, simple things they do such as the budget that you get the following year is a function of what you spent the previous year and it incentivizes people to not wisely use resources but to squander the resources that they have, or judging the worth of projects based off of resources. I was at a Fortune 100 company a couple of months ago when I was first starting my, my book tour, and this was the first time in years that the senior leadership team of the company said, sorry, this year people are not getting extra money in their teams. We're not going to do the type of hiring that we've done. And immediately, employees had a really hard time adjusting because the boss had always said yes, and now the boss was saying no. And one of their first instincts was to do what psychologists call comparisons, social comparisons. Well, I was told I'm not getting an extra headcount. What were you told? And you start making these comparisons, and it leads to this never-ending dialogue with yourself that Well, if other people are, are the boss is saying yes to them, what does that mean that the boss is saying uh, no to me? So I think the first thing that leaders need to do is get out of this chasing culture where everything gets judged by the amount of resources. We want to start judging things by the outputs, not by the inputs. If someone can deliver a project for less money, for less time, and with fewer people, that really should be celebrated. Whereas the reality is, we often reward people through our budgeting process by spending all of the money, because that's how we set budgets the following year. So I think once we get out of that, that chasing mindset, it's much easier to enable stretching because we're talking about our outputs and what we're able uh, to do. And so in terms of an example, one of my one of my favorite examples is uh, from the, the movie maker Robert Rodriguez. He's a fascinating person because he started his career like many of us. He had limited money. He didn't have much experience. He didn't have a lot of connections. But he realized if he... Follow the same script that Hollywood did in terms of trying to make a big budget film, he would fail because he just didn't have the he didn't have what they had. So what he did do is he said, well, what do I have? And he took stock of stuff he had. He had a French ranch where he could film his first movie. He met some people who he thought may, might make good actors. Instead of using expensive dollies uh, for the cameras, he used a wheelchair, and he ended up making his first film for the cost. Of what most Hollywood travelers would cost, which is just really hard to believe. And he sold it to Columbia Pictures for for a lot of money. But what's interesting about him is as he grew up and developed a style and a reputation and a career and had access to all of these resources, he maintained that same type of style. And even when he made more ambitious and bigger budget films, he still did it for a lot less money. And I think it really goes to the importance of of mindset. He embraces stretching mindset and everyone who works for him follows that same type of mindset. Instead of asking, you know, how, how can we do this like other people? They ask more creatively, how can we do this not only cheaper, but also better?
1: I like that cheaper and better. It does remind me, Scott, I was coaching a woman not too long ago who bought so she her peers were not all that supportive of her promotion. She's doing a great job, but they just weren't really convinced that she deserved it. And so there was a little bit of a reputation issue here that needed to be managed and her boss was working with her on managing that reputation. And so she was asking for, can I have more resources? I need a younger staff member. I need an additional person to help me. I need this support. And her boss kept saying, no, 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 no. And the reason he was saying no, 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 no is really because she needed to learn to work with what she had so she could showcase to everybody how good she was without all the, without all the additional support. But she could never get her head around that. She thought that meant he was singling her out never got her head straight that that was a benefit.
2: Right, because when we hear no from the boss, we think, we take it personally, and we think, well, we think of a few things. One, maybe my standing isn't so good, because if it were, the boss would be giving me everything that I ask for. Or two, maybe this project isn't really a priority, because if it was, of course I would be getting more money, more time, or more staff. And again, it goes to that corrosiveness of chasing. But if we can actually learn to embrace that constraint and say, this is an opportunity for me to show – My boss, my supervisor, the board, whoever that might be that is holding me accountable, that not only can I still get the work done, but because I'm freer due to these constraints, I can actually get the work done better.
1: Okay, great. It's an interesting mind shift and set shift, and it's an easy one to say. I think it's probably extraordinarily difficult to do when you're surrounded by a host of people who have this chasing mindset. So if I just come do a quick recap here, Scott, number one, it's the notion of I have to check my own mindset. That chasing more does not lead to better results at the end of the day or greater satisfaction or a whole host of other things, and it certainly doesn't lead to better results in spite of our mindset. It wastes time. Um, We don't think creatively. We only think about the resource, the traditional ways of doing things. So it isn't good to chase. So as an individual, I want to shift my mindset to recognizing that I'm stretching. I'm doing with what I have. I'm getting started. I'm getting moving. And I'm thinking about what the constraints I have in an alternative way, in a creative way. And that frees up energy and possibilities and alternatives that can actually lead to better results. Now, that's as the individual. But equally as the manager now, I need to be able to get my team to think about stretching. And we're going to come back from a break in just a minute and talk about how you do that. So, what does this all really look like? So, did I get that right, Scott?
2: That sounds great.
1: All right. With me today is Scott Sunenshine. Scott is um, a professor at Rice University. The book we have been talking about is Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less, and Achieve More Than You Have Ever imagine, Imagined. When we come back, I want to talk about specifically what are the 12 things you need to do to stretch? And then I'm going to ask, well, what does that mean we're doing as managers and leaders? We'll be right back.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc. Helping organizations get it and keep it.
1: How is your business running? It should be running smoothly, with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host,
2: Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier,
1: better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Looking for exciting
2: video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv
0: for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now toll free 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
1: With me today is Scott Sunenshine. Scott is a professor of management at Rice University. He's done a ton of award-winning research. He teaches, he consults with Fortune 500 executives, in, uh, well, entrepreneurs, professionals in all sorts of places across a host of industries, and has also worked as a strategy consultant and lived through the rise and fall of the dot-com boom working in a Silicon Valley startup. We've been talking about stretching versus chasing, and this comes out of the time of Scott's um, experience in the dot-com boom in the early 2000s in Silicon Valley where there were tons of resources available and the game was find as many as you could, as quickly as you could, burn through them as fast as you can so you could get more. Chase. Scott's experience is that chasing didn't necessarily lead to better outcomes. In fact, his research will say that our brains work better under constraints, whether those are real constraints or even just imagined constraints, that we think freely, that we stop wasting time, delaying actions, searching for the ideal, doing the traditional thing. So Scott, you have a particular view about how to stretch in what I'm going to call quote unquote the right way. So, you say that setting expectations is important, and I know a lot of managers who believe that what they need to do is to push their teams really, really hard, give them very big stretch goals, and push, 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 push. And that pressure can sometimes get to be counterproductive. So, how do you think about that? When is the stretch counterproductive, and when is it really beneficial? Can you explain the difference there?
2: Yes. And... I think one of the most important things that leaders do is set expectations. So getting this right is a high priority for not just stretching, but, but for for leading too. But one of the challenges we have in setting expectations is basic psychology, where we often think of the worst in people. And it's what we call the fundamental attribution error. And basically what that means is, I mean, imagine you, you see someone, they show up they show up late for work. The first thing that goes through I think most people's minds is, well maybe they're irresponsible or they were out late last night or something something that speaks to them as being fundamentally flawed or making a making a mistake. Now If we were to do that same thing, we have access to our own situations. We would know, for example, that we got stuck in traffic and that would explain why we were late. Now the mind is doing this all of the time in terms of reading people's behaviors and whenever they see something that goes wrong for another person, we make the attribution that it's something core to that person. But for us, it's core to ourself. And that goes the other way in terms of positive things too. So when we see someone do something positive at work, maybe they get a promotion. Now we reverse though. We think it's the situation and it's not themselves. They got lucky, they were connected. But if it was us in that same positive situation, we think, oh, it's about us. We were working really hard or we're really talented. And because of this fundamental attribution error, it gets in the way of how we set expectations because we're always thinking of the worst of everyone else and the best of ourselves. So the first thing to, to recognize is setting Positive expectations is one of the most important things that managers can do, and research going back all the way to elementary school children in the 1960s to looking at businesses, to looking at government organizations, the military has shown this, uh, this effect. It's, uh, it's called the self-fulfilling prophecy. People live up or down to the expectations that we set to them. So if we want people to elevate their performance as leaders. What we need to do is set positive expectations. You're pointing to a problem that goes too far in setting those positive expectations. It's about stretching people too far by setting unrealist expectations. So what the research shows there is the most critical element to focus on is how credible does the person you're setting expectations for believe those expectations actually are. If that person doesn't believe in those expectations, doesn't internalize it, that they think they can elevate to that performance, high expectations, which usually has this great positive effect, actually turns into performance pressure and makes people perform worse. So what's critical is you got to set not just positive but also credible expectations that are believable by the person you're setting them for.
1: So that would mean that that's why one kind of stretch works well for one person and is a disaster in the same way for another person.
2: Exactly. And it's that, that, you know, part of it is a science, but there's also an art in terms of being able to read your team members that you're leading about where that line of credibility is. So coming out there and... Setting an expectation that has never been met in the organization before, that might be problematic for anyone on your team because they're going to have some self-doubt and they're going to have a lot of self-doubt. So what you want to do is you want to, you want to push them and make it positive, but you don't want to push them too much where they can't internalize that they can get it done.
1: Okay. All right. Now, do you have any clues how to tell if somebody's starting to feel like it's not credible and they can't do it? You know, because people will always say, Ooh, I'm not sure. But I'm not sure means I need to think cleverly and it can mean, oh no, I can't do it.
2: Well, so yeah, I mean I think I think you know, hearing strong signals of self doubt is a clue that it's it's not set credibly for them. And you know, people people often want to self handicap themselves and kind of stack the deck and set, set low expectations and then try and deliver deliver higher. But if you're hearing a lot of a lot of self doubt, you want to have a conversation with your team member about that self doubt and look for clues such as are they simply self handicapping themselves or do they genuinely have reservations that they can live up to this expectation. If they do have those genuine reservations, you can do one of two things. You can lower the bar or you can try and talk to them about those reservations and provide them with counter evidence that those reservations aren't necessarily true. But if you don't leave that conversation with them believing in the credibility of your expectations, chances are this high expectation is going to turn into a performance pressure. We all have jitters when it's time to perform, and we need to separate the true jitters from the self-doubt that undermines the credibility of expectations.
1: Okay. It reminds me, um, I've just been spending the last couple of days working through some issues around gender and women in organization. One of the comments that always comes back from performance reviews about women is they're lacking confidence. The research says that women are just as ambitious and just as confident as men. My experience, though, is that they show confidence in a very different way. So I often say that when you give a woman an opportunity or an expectation to performance, She will often say, not always, but will often say, I'm not sure. But the I'm not sure is not genuinely I'm not sure. It's an invitation to discuss. I want to talk about it. Whereas men are much more likely to say, yes, absolutely. They may privately have a host of doubts, and it may even tip into the non-positive area, but they're not as likely to say that to the manager. Now, do you have any similar experience on this, Scott?
2: Yeah, I mean, I do think there's, there's big gender effects here in terms of people uh, communicating their doubts. And in many cases, it's the men's doubts that are much more problematic for leaders than the women's doubts because the men are trying to conceal it around a facade of strong confidence. But if you present that strong confidence and say, yeah, no problem, I've got this, but you're really teeming in self-doubt, That's going to turn those expectations into performance pressure, and it's going to make it really hard for leaders to be able to detect that you have those self-doubts. And so you're just setting yourself up for failure there. So I think if leaders can try and create a safe environment where not just women but also men feel comfortable expressing their reservations about a project and talking through it and having that conversation, that's going to make everyone better off.
1: Okay. All right. And one last thing. Is there anything I can do as a leader to help people adopt a more stretch mindset?
2: Well, the entire uh, chapter nine of the book has a dozen practical exercises to, to boost our stretch. And we can talk about some of my, my favorites. Um, yeah. So one, one of my favorites is this idea of just saying no. And again, I think this is so counterintuitive to the way that most people work where we're conditioned primarily because of chasing, to be asking for more time, money, staff, resources, and so on. So to get people more comfortable with this, what I recommend is start small. So take a project that you're working on and just ask for a little less time, you know, one less day, five percent less time, five percent less money, one less staff member, and recognize that that will have an effect of opening up your creativity and engaging better what you already have. And it's not going to be the end of your project. In fact, it might be the beginning of thinking about that project in a very different way. And what happens over time is you start small and you slowly build up your own confidence that you can work better because of these types of constraints. But if you kind of go cold turkey and... Uh, start too radically, it makes things a bit more difficult. So I like people that just say no to um, more resources and even try and take it a little further and ask for slightly fewer resources for one project they're working on. Another thing that I like to do is with stretching, we want to rethink about our resources. So we often want to mix up what we have. So mix up resources. This, This could be as simple as you've got a regular staff meeting on Monday. Try and run it on a Tuesday and see how it changes the dynamics. We know that time and situations influence behavior a lot. Maybe after a day of the work week, people are gonna come to your meeting with a different perspective and different ideas. Invite guests, so mix up the dynamics of who's actually in the group, and invite a guest to participate in a meeting. So doing anything to kind of get you out of the usual routine helps introduce new ways of thinking about uh, resources. And then kind of this is this is a uh, another one that I really like which is called Take a Break. We often think that we're only doing real work or our staff is only doing real work when they're, you know, at the computer being quote-unquote, productive. But what research shows us is a lot of thinking happens at a subconscious level, and it shows that taking a break, a short break, maybe 10 minutes every two hours, and doing something mindless, playing a little game, doodling on a pad, going for a walk, helps us think about and make connections to ideas and concepts that we'd have a much harder time making if we were actually doing the work itself. So the idea is to do something that is... Not completely like, not completely doing nothing. I mean, the research shows you, you completely just stop working and you, you put your head down and you do nothing. You're not going to get the effect. But you do something that involves a slight degree of thinking and your brain is still going to be subconsciously thinking about your work problems. But I think leaders, you know, would come around and see someone doodling and say, get back to work. You're not doing your job. But there's actually uh, a lot of unconscious, uh, subconscious work that's, that's happening. And if we kind of encourage people to take that break, we're, again, freeing them to make connections they might not otherwise
1: make okay all right besides which the performance literature says we are at peak performance if you take a break every 90 minutes so that would be consistent with it and it doesn't have to be a long break it's just a short refresh let your brain work through the ideas subconsciously in some ways okay okay All right, so just say no. I love this one. Um, Ask for a little less, a little less people, a little less time. Um, Alternative is you can work with a consultant who tends to say, yes, we can get that done to that deadline, even if you think you can't get it done to that deadline and they end up pushing you to do it in a different way. And then you mix up resources. That's three of the 12. Scott, I can't have you stop there. Give us some more of them. They're good ones.
2: Well, I like um, one that I call planning backwards. And it's the idea that We think that our best performances come from the most planned out performances. And in some cases, that's actually true. But I'll tell you, we find ourselves in such a dynamic world right now where things are always changing, then it's hard to predict what's gonna happen five years from now, or even one year, or even one quarter from now. If you think about where the stakes of planning are highest in business, it's probably large companies doing five-year strategic plans. But what the research shows is there's actually not much of an effect on performance of those five-year strategic plans. And in fact, some studies actually show a negative performance effect. What tends to happen is we plan for a world that no longer is going to exist by the time we think it's going to happen, but we still assume that we're in that same world. So planning becomes not the quintessential resource to lead us to success, it actually becomes a stumbling block. So what I like to get people to do is to actually think about planning backwards. And what I mean about planning backwards is, instead of trying to predict an unknown future and tricking ourselves that we actually predicted it, just go about and try one project where you don't have a plan and then at milestones, reflect back on what you actually did. And that's what I call your backwards-looking plan. It's a diary. It's a history of what you did. And then after the project is done, compare that backwards-looking plan to the forward-looking one you ordinarily would do. How are they different? How are they the same? What did that backwards-looking plan enable? In some cases, what did it uh, prevent you from doing? And as we get more comfortable with this, we begin to learn how to work better through uncertainty because we realize some things are just not predictable and if we assume they are predictable we get into trouble when it turns out that they're not right
1: okay but i like the part that you stop at key milestones to reflect because that helps you know where you are are you on track not on track and so on
2: Right. It's not just about, you know, doing things in the wild. I mean, there are points where you want to be accountable and, and reflect on things. But my point is, it's hard to predict a future that is always changing. So instead of trying to plan ahead, what the best leaders tend to do is they do a lot of little experiments where they try things out observe and then reflect and then make changes and it's this much more nimbler type of behavior that you can get to when you're stretching because your resources are much more flexible but I think there's a lot of comfort that leaders take in planning because everything is laid out it looks very polished so it must be really good but again I don't think that's the type of economic environment that most businesses are operating in today.
1: Right. Well, planning allows us to chase in an absolutely perfectly way. If you think about it, I plan so that I can ask for the budgets, so that I can get the team resources, so that I can get the approval to do this project, so I can showcase what it is I can do, so I can get more money and more resources and a bigger promotion and so on. Exactly. An interesting strategy. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of people who are trying, having, having a hard time to get their heads around it. Okay, so you've given us four. Give me one more, one more strategy for stretching.
2: Um, I like this idea that I call Go Explore, which is about trying to make ourselves more complicated as leaders. And what I mean by more complicated, I mean what research shows is the diversity of experiences we have often has a big impact on performance. But the way that our society is set up, and this starts with our education system and often goes up all the way through our business organizations and our careers is rewarding specialization. So the question is, how can we have a diversity of experience when we're focusing so much on specialization? So when we're exploring, what we're doing is we're finding ways, either real ways or vicarious ways, to get a mixture of different experiences to be able to see problems in different ways. Steve Jobs had this kind of legendary comment where he basically said, the difference between you and your dumb friend is the bag of experiences that you carry around. So as leaders, we want to find ways to... For example, go to a conference, but in a very different industry, or go have lunch with someone who has a similar job, but also in a different industry, and you'll realize that oftentimes we're solving very similar problems, but different people with different backgrounds are solving those problems in very different ways. And If we can connect with them, we can then use that knowledge to solve and enable the people who work for us to solve problems in better ways.
1: Scott, that reminds me, an old, old piece of research looking at Nobel Prize laureates, so people who were nominated for um, a Nobel Prize. I don't think they were necessarily winners. I think they were nominees. And we, uh, they were asked about the piece of work they did that they thought was most generative, most creative, most sparking. It may not have been what they were nominated for the Nobel Prize for, but anyway. It turns out that those were experiences where they did not have an abundance of resources to be consistent with your story, and they were reading, living very um, broad lives, meaning they were reading broadly, they were interacting with people from all sorts of different places, and it was the pulling of one idea, one concept from one area into the thing that they were working on. That made all the difference in the world. There's some other components of it, but they're right in there, right up there with what you're saying about stretching.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. And it actually turns out that Nobel Prize winners also have a disproportionate amount of experience in the arts. It's the same type of effect. They're they're doing things differently that then inform what their core expertise is.
1: Uh, Fabulous. All right. We're going to take a break again. With me today is Scott Sun and Shine. The book, if you're interested, is Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less, and Achieve More Than You Have Ever Imagined. We're going to come back. We're going to talk specifically about um, how you do this when you really like a lot of control and why is knowing a little bit better than knowing a lot. We'll be right back.
0: The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and
1: keep it.
0: To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back. With me today is Scott Sunshine. Scott is a professor of management at Rice University has written a ton, a lot of award-winning research, a lot of teaching, a lot of consulting with Fortune 500 executives, with entrepreneurs, with a whole host of industries. Now, we've just been talking about Scott's book, Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less and Achieve More Than You Ever Imagine. And just to do a quick recap here, the notion is that working with constraints forces you to think creatively and to stop wasting time chasing additional resources. But so much of our lives in the business world, at least, are set up to chase more, get more people, get more money, do more planning to get more people to get more money, to get more time, and so on. And the notion, though, is that with constraints, real or imagined, we think about our resources in a new way and often perform better. And there's a host of research to back this up. Now, as a leader, it also means that part of what you need to do is to set expectations. But to set expectations on stretching for your people really is critical that you're setting positive expectations and that people believe that that the expectations are credible enough that they can indeed live up to them. And that's where it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy and the wonderful virtuous circle. If you've crossed a line where people feel the expectations are not critical, then you get self-doubt, then that's where the stretch starts to become negative. And we've just been talking about several ways, five of them specifically, that you can adopt more of a stretch mindset. And if you're interested in more, there are 12 exercises in Chapter 9 of the book if you want to check it out. Now, what I want to do right now is to talk about this notion of knowing a little about a lot versus being a deep expert in a very narrow field. And Scott, you say knowing a little about a lot is actually best. Why?
2: Well, look, we often uh, advance in our careers because we're really good at doing something. We're an expert at something. We're a subject matter expert at something. But as we move through our careers, we're going to end up knowing less than the people who work for us in terms of these areas. And what the research shows is What makes people the most effective leaders, the most effective problem solvers, is if they can connect the dots between lots of different types of information. And if you look at research, everything from uh, survey research to mathematical modeling, uh, there's this one uh, mathematical modeling study that basically shows that the way that we pick people on teams, we'd be far better picking names out of a hat than what we do. (laughs) Because what we tend to do is we have an expertise bias where we want to form teams where we want the most knowledgeable, the most experienced person uh, on those teams. And it's good to have those people around, but you also need what I call outsiders on those teams, those who actually don't have a lot of subject matter expertise or a lot of experience, but they know a little about a lot. So I'll give you one, one example from a, from a study. This is a study looking at about 10 different companies uh, across several different countries, and they looked at 166 problems that scientific labs of these big businesses were trying to solve. And they asked a very simple question, it was, to what extent does an employee's knowledge of a problem affect how well they can actually solve a problem in that same domain. So think about this as a biologist. How how likely can they solve biology problems? Now you might say, well, why even study that question? The answer seems so obvious. Uh, But actually, they found, I think, the reverse of what most people would expect, which is the more knowledge that someone had about a given domain, the less likely they were to solve a problem in that domain. But in other words, biologists solve chemistry problems better than the chemists and vice versa. And you might ask, well, why? How can this be when having more knowledge solve problems uh, better? Well, what happens is when we develop expertise in a certain area, we use that knowledge in very specific ways. But the types of problems that we're facing, especially businesses today, become more and more uncertain with lots and lots of changing rules, changing situations. But experts continue to approach those problems in an, what we call an entrenched way, using the same models that they've learned over and over on time. So what we want to do is we want to shake up our teams by putting outsiders, putting someone who's never solved a problem in that domain, and letting them import knowledge from other domains to help our teams be much more effective.
1: Wow. That has huge implications about how you staff your team and also about why you should put someone in to lead the team who perhaps is not an expert in the area. And also why your expert should welcome someone leading them who isn't the expert. Enough knowledge, a little bit a lot, connect the dots, thinking about the problems in a different way given that the title, the whole premise of this show is about how do you lead when you're not an expert. I like that information. That sounds fabulous.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, part of this too is leaders just dealing with issues around control because we tend to think that knowledge is control and we might be a little fearful if we have someone, uh, you know, in charge who isn't, isn't the expert. But again, you've got to realize that as you work in your career and you get higher up in your career, you're fundamentally a problem solver. You're not the subject matter expert. And the way to solve problems is to be able to connect lots and lots of different information and to find and to build teams where people can be talking about different types of perspectives. Look, there's no use in having a team if everyone shares the same information. But when we build teams, we tend to put people who share the same information. And then what psychology research shows is we then tend to talk about the same information. We're talk about. Much, we much more likely to talk about what we share in common than what we don't share in common. When we're talking about what we share in common, we feel competent because we know it and everyone else does. So we feel really good about it. So that makes it much less likely for us to raise our unique or idiosyncratic information. The best leaders are able to not just build those teams where people have that unique knowledge, but encourage people to raise that unique information because people are often reluctant to say things that other people don't know because they think it must not be true. And that's, to me, one of the most fundamental challenges of being a leader.
1: Wow. That has huge implications for the whole notion of creating a diverse team and an inclusive culture where you really want to encourage people to bring their unique perspective. Now, we typically talk about that as gender, race, or ethnicity, and increasingly people are talking about it in terms of mindset. But it's extremely difficult to create an environment where I have something that nobody else really quite understands, or I think they're going to get, and I'm going to sound stupid if I try, and I'm never going to get them very far. It's a very difficult to create an environment where it's okay to raise that unique information. So any advice for how to build that environment?
2: Well, it starts with the leader creating a safe environment where people are rewarded from saying things that other people might not agree with. You go in and you talk to some leaders and they think that, uh, the best performing teams are the ones that get along the best, but that's not actually true. You want some notion of conflict, conflict where you're, you know, have different ideas, not personality conflict, but conflict about what you should be doing, why you should be doing it, different types of information. So if leaders can set the tone where this is a safe environment for people to raise ideas, and even if no one has heard of those ideas, or even if it turns out we disagree with those ideas, we want to encourage people to raise that unique information, because it certainly Serves No purpose being you know building a diverse team if people aren't raising diverse perspectives.
1: Okay, I love it. So that would mean that when we're putting teams together, we need to make sure that we have some people who are outsiders who have different information different perspective who can connect the dots, or as my guest last week said, who can ask the right questions. And then we want to make it okay for those people to not have the same information as everybody else and to be able to raise unique information or to share perspectives from a very broad set. So we're not talking about the same facts, the same data, the same observations and experiences in the same way. And then equally, um, we want to make sure – I've lost my train of thought there. (laughs) I'll leave it at that one. Okay, now any other advice about for people who like control – How can we manage when I really am comfortable with control? And what you're talking about is I don't have control in the same way.
2: Well, what you can control as a leader is the process. And the process of creating an environment that's healthy, that has good group dynamics, has the right people in the room, and they're talking amongst each other in the right ways. But if for you control is going to be all about knowing the most, I think you're going to really struggle as a leader because – You're not going to know the most. Uh, What you are going to be good at is being able to set the conditions for other people to share that information. So I think we need to get rid of, again, I think this is a relic of chasing, is that the more information I have, the better leader I can be. It's not about having the most information. It's about creating the best conditions to let other people share and thrive.
1: Well, and your whole premise on this one is that no one person has all the information we need at any rate, that problems are complex, the world is changing, there's uncertainty, it's evolving under our feet constantly, and so therefore the diverse perspectives are really the ones that are going to help us break through. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, I like that one. Okay, Scott, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Any last piece of advice that you would offer for anyone around how to stretch more effectively or lead an environment that's more focused on stretching?
2: I think, I think uh, the, the, the gist of it is if we can just follow two simple principles, we're going to get there most of the way. And the first is recognizing that we often overestimate what we need to succeed. And then the second part of it is, we underestimate what we already have. And if we can get those two things right, I'd say we're, we're 90% there.
1: I love that, we overestimate what is needed and we underestimate what we have. Okay, Scott, there's a ton in all of this that I'm gonna find a hard time kind of synthesizing, but if I say the general notion, just to go back to the very beginning, is we spend way too much of our time chasing. We chase more resources, more time, more people, more opportunities, more recognition, more information, more knowledge. We chase. And we spend our time chasing, thinking that we don't have enough. As you just said, we way underestimate what we already have. The contrast is to look instead at the constraints and see the constraints as a positive thing. And the notion is to use the constraints to free time and to free creative energy, and that we're going to call stretch. There's some principles around stretching, and one of those is to look at what you already have and think about using it in a different way. There's some exercises that allow you to do that in a very creative, interesting way, like planning backwards. I think that was a very clever one. And also as a leader, what I want to do is to set positive expectations that people believe are credible enough at the individual level that they can imagine living up to, and that's what creates the positive reinforcing cycle. I love that idea. The book, if you're interested, is Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less, and Achieve More Than You Ever Imagined. So Scott, thank you for being on the show today.
2: Thanks so much for having
1: me. All right, next week we're going to be talking with Lee Carraher again about millennials, and the book we'll be talking about is The Boomerang Principle. Join us then.
0: Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.